Who is the most famous thief in all the world who is a member of a religious organization? No, you're thinking about recent scandals in National Weekly News magazines and people who are right now in federal penitentiaries. No, I don't have him in mind at all. But who is one of the most famous thieves of all time who belonged to a religious organization but Judas Iscariot, who carried the bag? He was the bag man. He was the man who carried the purse. He was the treasurer, the vice president for financial affairs for Jesus Christ. When you read what Jesus had to say about money, you become curious, did he ever touch the stuff? I know he had to use it because we see that they had to purchase clothing, they had to purchase uh, fruits and vegetables and things to eat. We find that a company of women went along on some occasions on their travels. We know that Judas criticized Jesus on one occasion when a woman came in to anoint his feet with a very expensive ointment. And he said, what a waste, this should have been sold and the money taken and given to the poor. Because, you see, Judas continually carped and griped and criticized. He wanted to reach in and fine-tune Jesus and make Jesus Christ the kind of a Christ that Judas imagined he would be if he had that position. But deep at heart, he was a thief. When Christ was asked about the temple tax, they came and knocked on the door up in Capernaum and said, Does your master pay the drachma or the temple tax? He said, Of course. And he told Peter, go and throw a hook into the Sea of Galilee, and the very first fish you catch, when you take it up, you will look in its mouth, and it will have a coin. And it was a fabulous miracle involving money. And he went and did that and caught a fish, and sure enough, there it was with a coin in its mouth. Probably some traveler or fisherman at some time or another had dropped it overboard, and it glittered and shimmered, and the fish struck and took it, and Christ somehow, through God's Holy Spirit, understood that this had happened, and Lo and behold, they caught a fish, and out of its mouth came a coin, and the coin paid the tax. On another occasion, the Pharisees came to Jesus and the Herodians, and they began to try to tempt him, to trick him, and they said, what about paying tribute to Caesar? Because they wanted to get something against him so they could have some kind of a rigged trial and put him to death. And he said, well, would someone show me a penny? Of course, that's translated into King James English. It may have been some other type of money. And so they produced a coin. He said, well, that's curious. Whose face is that on the coin? And they said, well, that's Caesar's. He said, fine, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but unto God the things which are God's. We don't find Jesus dealing with money, of having a pocket full of change, and yet he had a great deal to say about it. As a matter of fact, we're going to find that he had one analogy to give which would have infuriated collective bargaining and the unions of today because of his upholding of free enterprise and the capitalistic system. Is there anything that so dominates your life as money when you stop to think about it? Every one of you, probably, including male, female, depending upon your age, has a purse or a wallet in your possession as you sit there right now. If some thief were to come in here with a submachine gun and say, okay, I want all your money and all your watches and rings and jewelry, he probably might make quite a haul, at least $137.52, because we're poor people, you know. But anyway, he might make a little bit of money. It's like the fellow sitting on a bar next to a young girl trying to impress her, said, I'm not really this tall, I'm sitting on my wallet. Well, you understand. I mean, all of us go around, we have a wallet, we have a purse, we carry money. When you watch television, you see people reaching over to spin a wheel. And here are normal people who would be sitting there. They know to 
keep a little pinky up when they're drinking their tea. They know to put the soup bowl away from them when they're finishing their soup. They know all the rules of etiquette. They would be a nice dinner partner. But all of a sudden on national television in front of 14 million people, they're leaning over, grabbing his wheel and saying, Come on, big money, big money. And they say it over and over again. Steam coming out of their ears and their nostrils flared and their hair straight up and their ears laid back, gleaming teeth. Big money. It's the American dream, isn't it? To discover the Brinks bag that tumbles out of the back of the truck as it careens around the corner. To get rich quick, to get something for nothing. Doesn't that explain Donald Trump and his magnificent, huge Taj Mahal? The greatest, biggest, most palatial gambling joint in the history of all of the world. It cost literally hundreds and hundreds of millions, perhaps even more than a billion dollars. And recently, it talked about some in the news, some Japanese who were over there and went through about, what was it, 20 or 30 million in one night? Does this not boggle your mind? Most of us would be satisfied with just one million dollars. I'd love to give you a clue today. I should have brought my magazine. We subscribe to a magazine called Money. Title of it, money, just says money. You look through it, Dreyfus Fund, you know, Merrill Lynch, all of the great funds, invest here, invest there, buy this, grab this, buy the other thing. And by the way, there's cigarettes for sale in there, too. Money magazine, some of you may take it. If I were to follow all the advice in that magazine, I'd be broke tomorrow because I would have so many things invested and the risk is so great that I'd be on Poverty Street tomorrow. Now, my life is involved with money. Hardly a day goes by, but that I go by Benny Sharp's office, or I poke my head into Marge Shaw's office, and I say, what was the income today? Because we are on television. Forty-two different television stations, many of which cost us more than $1,000 just for a half hour. Now, when you put that all together and look at that on a 52-weeks basis, you're dealing with a fair amount of money. Where does that money come from? Just yesterday, I ran into a friend of mine who asked me whether or not all of this problem in the religious field in the United States and these people who were off to the country club as a guest at the federal government for 20 or 30 years for selling more hotel rooms than they really had or for raking it in from the general public under false pretenses. Has this hurt your ministry, Garner Ted? Oh, no, I said. We've continued to grow at a significant rate of increase. Do you know why? Because... We never ask for money. I said, I, I enjoy uh, the ethical approach that we have, and it makes me feel very, very good to be able to say, we have nothing for sale. All of our literature is free. We give away books and magazines and tape cassettes, and we give away all of our materials because Christ said, freely you have received, freely give. It's the most ethical method that I know of in the world today, the method we use of refusing to beg, coerce, force, urge, try to in some way use psychology or even reverse psychology to try to get money. We don't have fundraising telethons. We don't stand in front of a big chart and say, now you people in Nashville need to catch up with the people in Memphis. What does that mean? Why is there competitiveness, uh, competitiveness on on the part of people who will sit there gullibly before a television set with some evangelist. This is supposed to be a preacher of the gospel, the word of God up there, cavorting around talking about a target that they have set to get a certain amount of money. Well, we're familiar with that. It leaves a bad taste in our mouth. One of the most outstanding examples of this is in the Bible in Second Kings, the fifth chapter. 
I want to turn to it because Christ mentions this, and it made him nearly lose his life in the very early part of his ministry when he mentioned in a Capernaum synagogue about Naaman the Syrian, whom during the days of Elijah was the sole person whom God sent. Actually, it was a great healing and a tremendous benefit for this man who was a captain of the Syrian host. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Second Kings, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable, because by him the Eternal had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, and he was a leper. He had this ugly, pasty, chalky-looking, disfiguring disease that seemed to just eat away the flesh until the nose and the ears and the lips and certain extremities just dropped off. It was an ugly disease of that day. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife like a slave, but no doubt they had a certain relationship. And when she knew about the leprosy, like a lot of you have gotten advice from someone that is a friend, by the way, I know something that will cure that, she said, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, because he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver. Now, a talent was a measure of weight. And, of course, Christ used the same measure of weight because it was a measure of weight of silver back during the days of 1611. Not in ancient Syria, but in England when this modern English version was translated out of the Rans Dalai. Ten talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold. That would be an awful lot of money, wouldn't you think? Gold today is worth, uh, where, hovers around 370 or so, between there and $400 an ounce. And ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that you may recover him of his leprosy. And he sent a lot of money to make sure that the fellow, you know, that it got his attention, that, that he knew that this was serious. We're willing to pay for this wonderful benefit. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, here the king of Syria, whom he fears, is sending this money that means nothing to him, saying, we can cure him of leprosy down here. The king thought, this is nothing but a pretext to declare war against me. He rent his clothes, tore his garments, and said, I, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeks a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger out, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and your flesh shall come again to thee, and you will be clean. And this made Naaman furious. He went away and said, I thought he will surely come out to me and do like all the holy men do. Wave his arms in the air, call in the name of the Lord and say, Be healed! You know, that's what they expect. We want a show out here. We want this man to come out and call in the name of God and strike his hand over the place, put his hands on me, and recover the leper. That's the way it's always done, isn't it? And are not Abana? And Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. They were clear, and uh, the Jordan was a little bit muddy, carried a load of silt. May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came there and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid you to do some great thing, 
Like, you know, climb a greased pole or make a pilgrimage to the top of Mount Everest or stand on your head and stack BBs or whatever it is. It's something really great. Would you not have done it? How much rather than when he said to you, wash and be clean? Now, it may have been a suggestion Naaman didn't like. Maybe he hadn't had a bath in a year or two. We don't know that either, for sure. But it's a possibility. It makes you wonder. Of course, he talks about, couldn't I bathe up in Syria? So you assume that he wasn't uh, unfamiliar with a bath. Then he went down. And after they had said that, it made sense to him, and seven times waded out in the river and went through the ablutions of scrubbing his body, maybe with some soap that he had or fuller's earth, maybe with a handful of sand, came out, went back in, kept careful count, seven times. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He returned to the man of God, he and all the company, kind of a caravan, no doubt a bunch of camels and horses there, laden with all of his money. And stood before him and said, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore, I pray you, take a blessing of your servant. Let me give you an offering. Let me express my appreciation. And he said, As the eternal lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Now, you've got to think about that. A few weeks ago, I was asked by some of my neighbors to deliver a sermon at Emerald Bay. And they're a Sunday-keeping group whose pastor was away on that weekend. So I went down there and I delivered them a sermon. But they took up an offering. And I was a little chagrined because I searched my pockets quickly and I guess I didn't have any ones or fives with me, so I gave them a slightly larger bill. I noticed mine was probably the largest bill in the basket. Most of them were ones. They came prepared. I'm not used to that kind of thing because I don't go to Sunday church and I'm not used to people passing the basket. So I didn't have the correct denomination for Sunday go to meeting in my pocket. One dollar. Anyway, they put that basket right in front of that little podium. And I stood there and preached for about 40 minutes with that basket overflowing with money right in front of me. And I felt so silly. But I made very definitely sure that everybody in that little congregation knew that I was not about to take a dime of that. I have never yet received a dime for performing a wedding, performing a funeral, preaching out of the pulpit, speaking as a guest before people who asked me to do that type of thing, in a religious sense, I mean, of course, and I never will. Some time ago, a widow lady knew that she was getting near death. She called our business office and talked to us about wanting to bequeath her money to the church. Benny Sharp talked to me about it. He asked her, do you have any children? Oh, yes, she had three or four children. Well, he asked about their ages, and I guess they were all mature. He said, well, listen, Mrs. So-and-so, uh, wouldn't you think that it might be better to leave that to your children? It was about $15,000. Not a great sum, but still a significant sum to those children. We refused to allow that lady to cut her children out of her very meager will and encouraged her instead, leave that to your kids. Now, we were able to say that to an attorney in Florida recently where there is litigation underway because the lady has left a significant amount of money to the church. And her son, apparently, and she have had a deep rift and it was never healed. And it's something that is going to take a very delicate amount of handling to know exactly what was the will of the mother, and we have already found that the doctor said she was absolutely of sound mind and knew exactly what she was doing. But it's interesting to be able to tell people, because that attorney, when he heard that, said, what a breath of fresh air. I have never heard of a religious organization with that attitude that would actually tell a lady 
Give it to your children. Don't leave it to the church. They need it. Think about that. When I look at my face and I shave in the morning, I do not have to look at a man who is filled with avarice, covetousness, and greed. My father used to say of me, well, one thing Ted doesn't have, he doesn't have a problem about money. And that was true. I will not go into all of the problems that I encountered because of my desire to see that things were perhaps handled a little differently when it came to expenditures or the diversion of large amounts of money for things that I considered monuments or frivolous or perhaps not necessary for the conduct of the work of God. That is a completely different chapter. But the point is that as a person who is in the general public today, a person before, you know, millions of people in the general public and at the helm of actually three separate corporations, but the Church of God International and the Garner Ted Armstrong Evangelistic Association, in purchasing properties and developing, hopefully eventually, an academy for the training of future ministers and paying our bills, it is extremely comforting to me to be able to tell people right out there what is our financial policy. To go back and research my letters in vain to find the word emergency or sacrifice or borrow at the bank or put a mortgage on your home and send me money. We just don't do that. Notice this example. Here is God's servant of that time looking at a fortune, an absolute fortune. He's looking at money that he couldn't stagger away with under the load. Now, I'll tell you, it is fascinating. One time I did a television program on the subject of money, and we actually, with our television crew, went down to a couple of the biggest banks in Southern California, and they lugged up there under guard in a great big armored truck one million dollars in gold coin. And I sat in my studio in Pasadena, California, with stacks of gold coins and other types, including some of the bars, and it was right here in front of me, I could have reached it like that, and gathered it into my bosom, one solid million dollars. Ooh, it was beautiful. Does money affect you that way? You look at a, at a double-eagle American gold coin that is now worth $499, that actually says face value $25. A lot of you, I bought my wife for an anniversary present one time years ago. She may have worn it once, and I think maybe twice. But it's, it's a, a beautiful coin. It says $25 face value. cost me close to $500 to give my wife that gift, and that was about appropriate to the occasion. We haven't reached our golden anniversary, and I know it's going to cost me a fortune, but I'm looking forward to it. Because when you've been married 50 years, it's going to be worth it. I can look back and see what I gave her for our silver anniversary. We have some silver things here and there that were a part of our silver anniversary. Money's beautiful, isn't it? That's why you like it. You like to have it, like to touch it, like to fondle it, like to check the wallet and go through it and see what's in there. Those coins are gorgeous. They're collected because of their beauty, not because of their value. You can't eat them. Now, when it says B-U, it means bright, uncirculated. Because, you see, anciently they weren't sure it was real money. Because people had a habit of taking lead and putting a little bit of a gold wash, dip it real quick, and then passing it off for money. So what they did is bite it. Because they would mix gold, you know, with various other alloys, so it wouldn't be 100% gold, but it would be basically pure gold. But lead is even softer than gold, and they could tell whether it was lead or gold by tooth marks. So if you had a $25 gold piece back in the 1870s, the chances were you picked it up and it got 
like a pencil in grade school, you know, it's got tooth marks all over it because they wanted to make sure it was genuine. Here's a man who had an opportunity for a tremendous amount of money and refused it. Naaman said, Shall not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth, for thy servants will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice under, under, un, I'm sorry, unto other gods, but unto the eternal. Verse 18, In this thing the eternal pardon thy servant, that when my master goes into the house of Rimmon. Now, he felt apologetic, and you can understand what he was saying, where he was coming from. I've got to go back home, even though I'm recognizing Israel's God is the only God. When I get back there, my master is going to force me to go to church with him, and Rimmon is his God, and when he leans and he does this and that, I'll be standing there. Please overlook that, would you, because I don't want to get in bad with your God. So he said, when he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the eternal pardon thy servant in this thing, would you, please? A little worried here. He'd been healed, and he didn't want God to get the wrong idea. I don't really worship Rimmon, but my master's going to make me go in there. Go in peace. No problem. So he departed a little way. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master has spared name in the Syrian. He was sort of the original Judas. He was Elisha's servant, but he didn't think Elisha would handle that too well. He probably saw all that money and those saddlebags on those camels and horses bulging with gold and silver, and it really bugged him that they'd been sent away. And so he ran after him, and Gehazi followed after Naaman. Verse 21, when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him, and he said, Is everything well? It is well. My master has sent me. He lied, saying, Behold, even now... There be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Total lie. Several fabrications. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver. Didn't want to be greedy, just a talent. Probably a couple, three pounds, whatever it weighed. And two changes of garments. Naaman said, Be content, take two talents. Gave him double what he'd asked. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and laid them upon two of the servants, and they bear them before him. So he goes back. Bestowed them in the house, let the men go, probably had to pay them a little, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, tried hard to wipe the grin off his face. Elisha said, Where do you come from, Gehazi? And he said, I didn't go any place. And he said unto him, Went not your heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money, to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants, materialism? The leprosy, therefore, of Naaman shall cleave unto you, and unto your seed forever, your kids, your grandkids, and as long as anybody of your generation lives. What a curse he placed himself under. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Incredible biblical example of a man of God, devoid of avarice, of his servant who was filled with it, was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, and used the very power of God's Holy Spirit and a miraculous healing out of the generosity of God's heart to get money. And here's what happened to it. There are many examples in the Bible that call to mind the same thing. Judas Iscariot was a thief. He was also a liar. Thieves and liars go hand in hand. He was a cheat. He was a lot of other things. The price of his friendship with Jesus Christ of Nazareth was whatever amount it would be equal to today, 30 pieces of silver. He saw an opportunity not only to get even with Christ, 
to somehow absolve himself of his shrieking conscience, but at the same time to get rich. So when he betrayed Jesus, he got paid off. He wanted to get his hands into the till. Now, all of us are engaged in the week, weekday work, workaday week, in earning a living, making ends meet, purchasing food, clothing, and shelter, sometimes a few of the luxuries that we may desire. So there is really no subject that preoccupies us more, especially as we get older, the fixed income of the elderly, and people worried about Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and whether or not their investments are secure. People are living in nursing homes and mobile home villas and seeing the erosion of their spending power because of inflation. So continually, week in and week out, payday to payday, day by day, you and I must handle money. Take out that checkbook. Put our signature on the dotted line. Go through the supermarket check stand. Deal with the IRS. Pay our taxes. Pay our bills. And it seems like a never-ending dark tunnel with no light at the end. There is just never enough of it to go around. If there is one thing that would make anyone in this room deliriously happy, it would be to have some strange man in a natty black suit with a slim black briefcase come to your door during this next week and tell you you had a long-forgotten uncle who left you one million dollars. Now, there used to be a TV program that dealt with that, as to what that did to people's lives, called The Millionaire. And, of course, it showed all the corruption and the greed and all the things that happened to people when they got that kind of money. What is money? Now, you all know, if you were to take a test in school, that money is a medium of exchange, but do you know that the actual word came from Juno Moneta, a pagan Greek god? We hear about charging a fee. Do you know where that came from? From the old word fife. Way back during the days of kings and princes, when you were over, if you were a prince, a fiefdom, and it was a payment of the person who lived in that fief to the person who was like the prince who was the landowner and became shortened to fee. When you work, you earn a saltery. Originally, it was called celery or saltery because it comes from the word salt. We've heard the expression, if any man were worth his salt, he would do thus and such, because salt used to be a very rare commodity. So, of course, anciently, salt, being so rare, was contained in very expensive prized artifacts and sometimes beautiful antiques. My father actually purchased a couple of them and had them on his dining room table. They were rearing stallions about this long and about that high with the greatest detail of knights in armor with even the chain and the horse's bits and so on, or the the uh, ropes and everything on the horse of finely woven gold that he got from some family in England way, way back when. But the cute part of it was that if you just knew how to twist on the horse's head, it came off at the neck. And the body of the horse was hollow. It was where anciently this wealthy family hid their salt. There are what is called salt cellars that are fabulously expensive pieces of table jewelry that people used to use. You know what escudos are? Some people do, some people don't. If I said lira, you think Italy, right? If I think franc, you think France. If I say mark, Deutschmark, or Eastmarks, you know it's Germany. If I say quetzales, what am I talking about? Honduras. If I say pesos, you know Mexico and Spain, right? Pesetas in Spain. But if I say thalers, what am I talking about? Dollars. 
because out of Germany, the word was that was a valley originally, and so a tower, which was merely a piece of whatever it was, some kind of a metal used as a medium of exchange, was brought by Germanic immigrants to the United States and corrupted into English to become dollar. Dollar has no meaning by itself. It's only a corruption of an old Germanic term. And yet now we have a magazine named after it, and of course we can talk every single day and every, every week about money. How many charlatans, how many frauds, how many shysters have been exposed who have used religion to get money? There is a man on television now, still going, who a few years ago I happened to catch, and of course I can only stand a few seconds of it, but I watched a few seconds of this man. He was cavorting around in the audience, and his gimmick was to keep these people believing that he had some supernatural powers of looking right into their eyes and understanding all about their lives, that he would walk up to some lady and said, now let's see, your name is, is Bertha, isn't it? Amazed, she would say, well, well yes. A and you have a son who is afflicted with cancer, don't you? Well, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Bertha, have we ever met before? No, no. Well, have you ever written to me before? Well, I know, I've never done that. Without knowing it, of course, his wife and other helpers were interviewing these people and talking to them as they came in, and they were way back in a balcony somewhere with a tiny little radio, and looking like nothing so much. It's the lady in the pink dress over there, third row. No, not that one, stupid. The next one, you know, say, go over there, your name is Bertha, got a son with cancer. So he's hearing all of this, and he's faking it, and they're pretending to heal. They got exposed. Somebody caught them at it. I forget what all happened, what the penalties were, what the fine was. It didn't matter. The guy is out there. He's still on TV. He's still pretending to be a bona fide minister. You'd think he would have said, you're right, I'm a fraud, I quit. No, no. They have got more brass, you know, than some of these people carry on a camel load. they got more brass than anybody has, these people who are shysters and frauds in a religious field, and there are plenty of them, who are out to get your money. Some of the gimmicks are, Mr. Ron Dart has written a book, which I hope that he gets published, on the religious fundraising in the United States, on the practices of many of these organizations, how they go about it. He has written to many, many of them and then gotten the entire chain series of letters at different levels of, of uh, force and coercion and suggestiveness and so on of trying to get him to part with his money, to give them money that they want. Have you ever seen anybody on television telling you that if you write off to them that they will send you a little thing to put in your wallet, if you send them maybe $20, then you put it in your wallet and you keep looking in your wallet and money's going to appear? They do that type of thing. When I see what God did to the servant of Elisha, it reminds me of a man in Florida many years ago whose name was Jack Coe. When my wife and I were driving across the southwestern desert coming over to the Feast of Tabernacles, I've heard him a few times. He was one of these of Oral Roberts' ilk back during the days when the Pentecostal evangelists would go around with a great tent and they would have outdoor, almost circus sideshows, religious meetings where allegedly people were healed. Well, Coe was down in Florida with one of these traveling tent camp revival deals, and some young man came up there on crutches, and his family with him, and he had polio. And he got him up on the stage, and Coe, in cavorting around and commanding the young man to be healed, grabbed his crutches, and the boy fell, 
and grievously injured himself because he was just, just had little spaghetti-like legs suffering from polio. Well, the parents tried to sue him, and apparently the man escaped. But Coe advertised later on, when he moved indoors and no longer wanted to use his tent, that I could send off and I could buy a piece of his tent for so many dollars that they cut up with pinking shears. And then they even advertised, if you can imagine the gall, that if I really wanted a double whammy and wanted to send a big offering, they would send me a piece of one of his sweat-soaked shirts that he had used in his evangelism in healing people when the holy oil was flowing. If I'd send money, I could get this dirty piece of cloth. Please don't send me the armpit, you know what I'm saying? piece out of the back is fine, front pocket something, the collar, all right, but but not the armpit. That probably would have gone for like a hundred bucks a whack, you know, a little bitty pinking shares piece about that big. You talk about justice. We read what happened to this man who leprosy clung to for the rest of his life and all of his family. You know what happened to Jack Coe? He was up in his fifties, his late fifties, and suddenly he was struck down with polio and died of the disease. That is some kind of frightening justice, isn't it? That's incredible. He virtually took this young boy's life parading around. He was going to heal him of polio, and a few years later, Jack Coe died of polio. Fantastic example. Well, Jesus Christ had a great deal to say about people who are filled with avarice and greed, I want to turn, first of all, to the Sermon on the Mount, when he said in Luke, the twelfth chapter, beginning in verse 22, to take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for your body, what you shall put on, because the life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. What I want to get across to you today is, bottom line, your attitude about money, your attitude toward what Christ calls the mammon of unrighteousness, your attitude toward making ends meet, materialism and survival in this world is incredibly important as to whether or not you ever achieve God's kingdom. Your approach to money, your feelings about accumulating money, your feelings about what you think is enough, what you would do to make money, corners you would cut, shortcuts you would discover, compromises you might make to make money. Very important to those angels up there writing down the record of your life, it has to do with an attitude. It does not have to do with a mouth. It does not have to do with a mouth. Life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, and he gives the example of them, and even lilies. And he said in verse 28, If God so clothed the grass, which today is in the field, and tomorrow cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And seek not ye what you shall eat or what you shall drink, or neither be doubtful of mine, because this is talking about over-attention. It's talking about anxious attention on materialism. It doesn't mean we do not have to think about eating and drinking and wearing clothing and having a home in which to live at all. But it's talking about your focus, your attention. What is it that causes anxiety and your constant attention? All these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things, but rather seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So the things will be added. It's a matter of priority. Fear not, little flock, 
It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let me tell you something about the resurrection. Resurrection time is going to be depending entirely upon our character and what it is that comes out of that tomb. And all that's coming out of the tomb is the character you build, that new creature in Christ that the Holy Spirit is gradually developing within you. Depending upon what that is, what it looks like, its form, its shape, how mature is it, the resurrection is going to be incredibly embarrassing. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, There is nothing hidden that shall not be revealed. He said, Your sin shall find you out. The Bible very clearly shows that at resurrection time, we don't wear these jackets and ties anymore. We come out of the grave the way we came out of Mama's womb. It's time in resurrection time for the angels to haul out the records. It's time in resurrection time for every man to give an account of those deeds done in his body, good or bad, with all the relatives and the neighbors, my dad and mom, my brother Dick, my grandmother, all there to see how did Garner Ted live his life after we died. Resurrection time is going to be hideously embarrassing time because it's a time when nothing will be hidden except those things you have hidden in the greatest hiding place that is available to anybody. Deeper than the vaults surrounded by water in the bowels of the earth in Fort Knox. Buried deeper than in lead canisters in the depths of the ocean. It's called the blood of Christ. Buried under the blood of Christ. God says that he will remove our sins as far as, uh, as, as the heavens are higher above the earth, his mercy is rather, and that he will remove our sins as far as the east is removed from the west, which of course merely an analogy that's so far distant it's like billions of miles out into space. And he will, quote, never again mention them to us. If we have stolen, if we have cheated, if we have been avaricious, if we have been cunning and clever in our grasping for money, if we have been less than generous, but pecuniary, small, little when it comes to money, if we're, as they say, a, a tightwad, if we're known to cheat. I remember when I was a boy, there was one occasion, the only one that I remember, there may have been others, I just really don't remember them. I'd be like Reagan in that uh, event that they asked me, well, how many times did you ever steal? I remember one time as a little kid, I gave into the impulse to reach out my hand in a dime store when I must have been five or six and steal a quick little handful of marbles. That bothered me all my life. Those are the ugliest marbles I ever saw. I couldn't get rid of them quick enough. My ears burn to this day when I think about a grimy little kid daring to reach out his hand and take three or four marbles that didn't belong to it. I suffered over that. It was awful. The feeling that came over me from having done that, having reached out my hand and stolen something that didn't belong to me. It's a wretched feeling. Well, I'm sure that God has forgiven that long since. But I'll guarantee you that's why I feel good that if somebody, somebody sends a letter to our organization and they say, I want to pay for these books, I want to pay for these tapes, we send that money back. I'm sorry you misunderstood. You cannot pay for this literature. If you wish to give voluntarily, that's one thing. We cannot coerce, and we do not in any way try to influence you to do that. That's your decision voluntarily between yourself and God. 
but we don't want you to feel that you must pay. I've had to personally tell people who come up to me very apologetic in personal appearance campaigns saying, well, I would have written for more of your literature, but I just didn't feel I should because I'm on a limited fixed income and I don't have any money. I will tell them, forget it. We want you to get all the literature we have. You stay right on the mailing list. Let us send you everything we publish. I've written personal letters to people who feel embarrassed. Elderly people. We get letters that will bring tears to your eyes in our weekly Friday morning prayer breakfast of elderly people like a woman the other day who was keeping care of a dying husband. They were well up in their 80s and he had cancer and she was washing his body and taking him to the lavatory and doing everything for him and she was aching and filled with pains and very sick herself. These are not people that we should be exploiting, but people we should be helping. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about that attitude, and I'll show you in just a moment. He said, verse 32, Fear not, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What is it that he is giving? What is eternal life worth? Well, he used analogies of money, didn't he, and of value. He talked about a great treasure discovered in a field, and a man would go sell his home, his car, his boat, his bus airplane, whatever he had, and go buy it, because it would be of such great value. He talked about the pearl of great price. He talked about discovering something of such inestimable value that you would sell everything you have to possess it, merely as an analogy to show of what value is living for all eternity. My life has been ridiculously short. It's unbelievable how little time I have walked around on this earth standing here looking out through a 60-year-old face. It went so fast, I don't know where it went. I don't think God says that I'm in a wrong attitude to say, I want more. I'd like to live longer. I made a joke the other day with some of the guys that I golf with. I want to shoot my age, and I want to get one of the worst scores I've ever had, 99 That'd be a terrible score in golf, but it would be, wouldn't it be great to be out there swinging a club at age 99? I like to shoot my age any old time. 73 would be fantastic. Of course, that'd be weird and I'll never do it, but it was just a joke. When you shoot your age at golf, you are some kind of a golfer. Because you see, some of the greatest scores in the history of the game are in the low 60s. And if you're that old and still able to play right with some of these pros that are 19 to 24, you're shooting a pretty good game of golf. Well... The life does go by very, very quickly, and eternal life looms ahead, and that grave waits for us all. And the older you get, the nearer that grave looms, the more you tend to think about that future. You don't have time for it when you're 16. You don't have time for it when you're 6 or 9 or 11, because summer is eternity when school lets out. It all just seems to stretch out into infinity. But a little later on, you look back, you wonder where it went, you look ahead and there's hardly anything left. Have I got 15 years, 20 years, 25? I don't know. Five? I don't know if I've got one month or one year, do I? But of course you don't either from one standpoint because we're all subject to accident or sickness. So Christ said, sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags that wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that fails not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupts, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is your treasure? Where is the most important possession you own? What is, in terms of things, whether it's your home, your clothing, jewelry, 
I once thought I had lost my watch, a beautiful watch that I bought in a little shop in Switzerland in 1960 for $550, 1960. Today, that watch is worth $8,000. Now, maybe it would have taken me as long to work for $550 in 1960 as it would to make 8000 today. I don't know, but let me tell you something. When I have a watch that's worth that kind of money and I thought I'd lost it, a little lesson. I'm saying, now, wait a minute. Is that more important to me than it should be? Have you ever had the experience of thinking you'd lost or really losing something very important to you and it almost makes you physically sick? Ever had that experience? Looking around frantically. I bet somebody stole it. First thing that happened. Who took it? You know, looking around and making all kinds of false accusations. You just get sick thinking about personal things. It's a good lesson. We need to overcome that. Quickly to conclude, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 4, uh, 24, you cannot serve God and mammon. And in Matthew 23, if we will turn to that, in Matthew 23 and verse 14, talking to the Pharisees, Jesus Christ said that they would devour widows' houses for a pretense, that outwardly they appeared to be so religious and so white and so righteous. He said in verse 14 of Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you devour widows' houses. Now, no one needs a house more than a widow. We have a lot of widows, thousands of them, I'm sure, on our mailing list. And many of them live in very meager circumstances. We get letters from them all the time. We write back to them all the time. We had a lady who wrote the other day who was expressing her appreciation for a local pastor who had offered to take her to the Feast of Tabernacles and find her a place very close to where the feast was. And if she had any problem, even take her all the way back home because she cannot drive. She has no transportation. And he was helping her in that way. And I thought it was a great example. But can you imagine God's attitude toward a pastor or a minister who would take some elderly woman who has lived her life, reared her children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren are there because of her, now so elderly, so infirm, perhaps arthritis, can hardly move, living alone, and they want to take away her house to get it for themselves? Think of this attitude. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. He went on to tell them exactly what they were, snakes, fools, and blind, vipers, and so on. And in verse 23, he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pay tithe. Now, Mr. Dart's brochure on a bag with holes and our booklet on tithing explains that doctrine, and that was not my purpose today. You pay tithe, and they should have of mint and anise and cumin. Now, in this case, they were paying tithe of the tiniest little herbs, of rare spices and things of that nature, to be very careful to tithe on the last little thing, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, clearly showing they should have tithed, and not to leave the other undone. Tithing and giving is as deeply personal as prayer. And they have the same bottom line. And that bottom line is this. You will never be in God's kingdom if you don't pray. And you will never be in God's kingdom if you are avaricious, cunning, clever, pecuniary, grasping, getting, selfish, and less than generous when it comes to the way you handle money. 
the way you feel about money, your approach toward money, and whether or not you are a person who is generous with God and understand that you don't pay God for gifts received. It is a sin, in my opinion, for any minister to claim to a person who tithes that they will experience immediate financial reward. How can that be when someone gets into financial difficulty because he's a poor money manager and suddenly begins to tithe and take 10% off the top and send it to some church organization? That isn't necessarily going to make him a good money manager. The emphasis being placed by some pastors on the idea that if you tithe, you immediately receive a blessing is a false emphasis. Tithing is an act of worship. It is a part of God's law, yes, that shows whether or not we are generous or whether or not we are grasping and greedy, but it is not something that is like a contract with God. It is not so much money on a Vegas blackjack table. It is not so much money in a in a game or on the wheel to get something in return. If a person gives in order to get, you can forget the gift. But a person who gives in order to give has given the true gift. So as Christ said, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. Every single week in the conduct of God's work, I can be thankful that this work does not beg people, the general public or anybody else, for money.